0: Can we pray together? Almighty God, we've, uh, there are all kinds of things we could have done this evening. We could have been out in our gardens in the sunshine. We could have been watching the end of the Olympics. Uh, but you've called us to set this time aside, uh, and we ask that we'd return from our time together glad that we've been in the presence of one another, together with you, that we've learned what will strengthen us for the days that lie ahead, when the weather has changed and the Olympics are far behind. Please show us Jesus and how he matters right now. Amen. I, um, I heard from a friend of mine, uh, in the week that's just coming to an end. He's been involved in Christian ministry among students for a number of years. And he made an observation in this letter about two missions he was involved with uh, in England in this last spring. This was the observation, that the unbelievers had turned up, but the Christians didn't. And he's worked with those Christian unions uh, for a while. And he made this assessment of what was going on. That the Christians sort of believe what they believe as being true for them. But they lack the necessary confidence to come out and say that if this Christian message is true, then it's truly true. Universally true, wholly true, reliably true. They've given in to the notion in the culture around us that you can believe what you want, but nothing is really, really true. And they're nervous of getting into that whole area. And what I want to do tonight is to consider Hebrews 8. We're in a series in Hebrews. And to aim for your mind concerning what is true. And in the process, I hope that I will also hit your heart so that you will be more confident than those students are about the world you're going into. Now, the passage, it's on page 1206, is not very difficult. It's not very difficult largely because I don't have to deal with most of it. Because a lot of it is setting up part of a discussion that's going to be coming in the weeks that will follow. So I can afford the great luxury of leaving the really difficult stuff to others to look after. That means what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to hurtle through the text... And then we're going to dwell on particular parts of it. So, uh, because it's holiday, let me just say how how we got here to chapter 8. The writer has been talking about uh, the ways in which Jesus is a high priest, or the high priest, who is different from all the other high priests that have gone before. He set up the need that there is for the, the high priest to be like this, like this, like this. And so he opens in verse 1 of chapter 8 by saying, "Now the point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest of the kind we've been talking about. And then he goes in, in verses 1 and 2, to say, we Christians have a solution to the need for someone who will sort out the problem forever. And that's how chapter 7 ends, forever. We're looking for someone who will sort it out forever. We Christians, we've got that. That priest, Jesus, has sorted things out at the heavenly level once and for all. Verses 3 and 4. Priests need something to bring as an offering. There's no point in our high priest just doing the same thing that the other high priests have always done here in the temple. Something has to be different. So we have a solution that works forever, but even our solution has to have... uh, something to bring. Verses 5 and 6, well, Jesus is operating in a better temple and in a better ministry. Now, you might think, well, hang on, that, that didn't quite make sense because we've just said he's got something better to bring, and then we haven't told what. Well, that's because it gets left to a little bit later. So, Jesus in verses 5 and 6 is operating in a better temple and in a better ministry. Verses 7 and 8, just as God promised through the prophet Jeremiah, and that's what the rest of chapter 8 is about the promise of Jeremiah. That's the shape. We've been looking at the high priests of God's people and saying what would be needed. We Christians have a solution that is permanent forever. Priests need something to bring. Not going to talk about that much because it's coming later. Jesus is operating in a better temple with a better ministry, just as Jeremiah promised. Now, some of the hard stuff, as I say, we can postpone. Chapter 9 is going to have much more on the nature of this better offering, the better sacrifice. On the blood of Jesus' own sacrifice. So I'm going to leave that to Charlie Lamont next week. Chapter 10 is going to deal uh, with more of the better promises that there are here in verse 6. But those are are further details. The shape of it, largely, is there tonight. So what tonight is going to be about is setting up the problem to which these coming chapters need to be the answer. And the problem is this. What was wrong with what there used to be? The coming chapters are going to explain in detail what's great about Jesus. But chapter 8 sets them up by saying, and this was all needed because there is a major problem. I began by talking about our confidence in the truth. And in our minds, if we're to become confident in the truth, we need to know what is the problem to which Jesus is the answer. Because there's no point going to our friends, let alone to ourselves, and, and whatever they say, going, Well, do you know, Jesus is the answer? Because the blank look comes back. Well, yeah, but what's the problem? Now, I suspect I could ask many of you to choose what you reckon to be the most important page in the Bible. Promises? Warnings? Stories? I don't know. But I want to make a claim tonight that the most important page in the Bible that we have in front of us, if you're in the Pew Bible, is page 964. Would you please turn to it? That's right, it's blank. It is the blank page between the Old and the New Testaments. And I reckon it's the most important because I meet so many people who don't understand the basic relationship between those two Testaments. And lacking that understanding, they have got no real confidence in what it is that God is up to in Christ. Now, so maybe I'm describing you. Let, let's call this option one. Many seem to follow the path of option one. They seem to reckon, perhaps because they don't read the Old Testament very often, that it works roughly like this the Old Testament. Well, the, that, that kind of the, the mystery of the blank page works a bit like this God um, tried out plan A in the Old Testament, but it wasn't very good at doing its job, and people were still sinners. So he had a second go with plan B in the New Testament. That's about our friend Jesus, and he sorts me out, and he's my friend, and all is well. There are so many things wrong with that, it's hard to know where to start. If you think that, then how are you going to answer the question that you're still a sinner? I am. How are we going to answer that? If we think that plan B sorted out the the sin problem that A, didn't, completely fail to sort out. Uh, That whole um, approach makes God take, uh, or or makes God much more focused on the issue of sin than he is on a relationship with us. And it really makes God much more focused on responding to our problems, poor me, poor my problems, it's actually focused on us. But what's most wrong with it, I think I can most illustrate like this, and it's convenient to have the uh, illustrations to hand at the moment. How many of you saw the heats of the 100-metres men's finals? The heats. Not many. And you were on holiday. How many of you saw the finals? It's rather more. Now, that's interesting, because obviously what came first was the really important thing, because it came first but for some reason you chose to watch the final, which can't be quite so important, because that came second. But that's the logic of option one. Did, you, did those of you who saw the finals find yourself at any point saying, well, the finals were just having a second go because the heats didn't sort it all out? Well, of course you didn't. We all know that, that there are contexts in life. Sometimes the important thing happens first, and everything else just follows. There's an option A, and then there's, an option, there's a, a plan A, and then there's a plan B. But we also know that there are times, and sport is just one of them, when the final is the important thing. That's why most of you watch the finals, not the heats. And everything else just builds up to it. So if we take option one, this idea that there was plan A and then plan B, then we're in the first approach. A, a, was, a was kind of quite good, um, but God had to respond and kind of do a bit of tweaking and come up with something else. But our writer here is opting for for option two, that God's business with his people is like a second approach. What matters is what comes later, and it's always been the focus. It's always mattered what's the uh, front end of the blank page. The New Testament is where it's always been heading. Everything else is just a build-up. So look at verse two. Uh, This high priest serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. Not the second, but the true. It was always the main event. Look at verse 5. They serve, the uh, old high priests, at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. You see, what's in heaven is the true, the permanent, the eternal. That was always the main event. What else was just a build-up copy in the shadow? To put it another way, later on in verse uh, 5, uh, you get the instruction to Moses. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The pattern was what was, was of what was true and eternal and lasting. And it was always heading that way. Even in the days of Moses there was a revelation of the way things ought and would eventually be. Meanwhile, Moses, you actually have to get on and make this thing, and it's going to be a copy and a shadow. It's not going to be brilliant, but it'll do, um, uh, until the real and the true and the permanent and the eternal comes along. The main event is what comes second. Do you know how um, ancient builders built arches? Some of you will. What they did is they, um, they built wooden mouldings. And they came along and they laid the stones on top of the wooden mouldings. And then they took the wooden mouldings away. And if they'd got it right, the stones didn't fall down. They didn't say, once they got the moulding up there, that's a really bad moulding, just because it didn't do the job of the stone arch. On the contrary, they said it was a good moulding precisely because it made the final stage, the stone arch, possible. But when the stone arch will bear the weight, you can get rid of the moulding. That's exactly the kind of thought behind the end of uh, chapter 8, verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. What is obsolete and ageing will soon disappear. The model on display... Relating the Old and the New Testaments together is not bad, good, or failure, success, but obsolete and permanent. The true sacrifice, the eternal presence of God with his people, that's what it was all aiming for. Now, I don't think that much is too difficult to grab hold of. It's not that there is the Old Testament and the New Testament sort of just corrects it because they made a bit of a mess with God responding to what was going on in, in, in the main event beforehand. On the contrary, it's always been heading for God's presence with us, his people. I don't think that's too difficult to grab hold of. The problem is that we have to face the next and obvious question, why Why would it be that way? God does not have a problem creating arches. He can make them. God is not in a competition with other athletes. He made them. So why would God make the true and the permanent what he uses second? Why wouldn't he do that from the beginning? Why bother with anything that is going to become obsolete? The mystery of the blank page is the mystery of verse 13. Why would God do something that was intended to be obsolete? For the answer to that question, we need to turn to the big quotation there from Jeremiah. Our why question is echoed in verse 7. If there'd been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Similarly, if you or, or, or kind of putting it the other way around, uh, if the, what was coming later was going to be the true and the permanent and the good and the fine and the perfect and everything you ever wanted, why would you bother with anything earlier? But notice the wording very carefully. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the People was nothing wrong with the covenant it was the people the answer is being set up for us the covenant it's exactly the same word as the word testament revealed God just beautifully but the people weren't beautiful the people couldn't keep the covenant and that's what this whole quotation is about God looks back to the covenant of law he made with Moses and the people when he led them out of Egypt The covenant was the solemn binding agreement that he would protect them, I will be your God, and that they would serve him and you will be my people. It was handed down on stone tablets, and it was a full revelation of the will of God for them. But that was the problem. It was an external set of commands on stone tablets. And verse 9 here, they did not remain faithful to my covenant. So God turned away from them. Now, in in itself, you could say, well, that's just the way it happened. But if we take seriously this language of the true copy, the shadow, if we take the language seriously of the pattern, if we take seriously this language of obsolete and new, then we have to say that God intended it this way. And that just drives more fiercely the question of why. Why would God intend it this way? God did intend it, and for this reason, if the people were ever to understand the finality of God's plan, the true, the permanent, the good, the perfect, that was coming with the great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, they had to be put through the processes, through the mill, if you like, of failing to keep the law. They had to be brought up face to face with human inadequacy to, do, to keep even the very best laws that there may be left in front of us. Only that particular failure would help them understand what was finally going to be needed in the relationships. And so God continues through the prophet, I'm going to make a new covenant. And the law is not going to be external anymore. I will dwell within them. I'm going to be in their hearts and their minds. So that they will all know me, not as a matter of external teaching, but with an internal relationship. So often we, we fuzzy up uh, and cuddleify the business of having a relationship with God. But the relationship with God that is promised in the New Testament is not buddy-buddy, not busy mates, but that you will know the will of God. You will have the, the will, the character of God written inside you. All of them will be like that, says Jeremiah. From the least to the greatest, the dimmest to the wisest, low to high, poor to rich, they'll all know me. I don't know how you learned to ride a bike. Uh, I suspect a lot of you, uh, being younger than me, uh, learned with training wheels. Uh, I didn't. Uh, they weren't such a big thing when I was learning to ride a bike. Instead, my father wrapped a very long scarf uh, around me and off I set down the garden, uh, with my dad pulling me back or to one side or another when I wobbled. And only occasionally uh, would I wobble so far as to fall off, which is not very far, because I was short then too, uh, onto the lawn. My body learned to manage uh, the permanent wobble that is cycling. Uh, If I had said, great, a bike, and hurtled off, I would have suffered damage. And it's not just that I was cycling because I put the wobbling behind me. After all, cycling is by definition a permanent wobble, as you will quickly understand if you try uh, to stay on a bicycle, it isn't going anywhere. The learning process was integral to what I eventually achieved, even if it involved failure along the way. God does things this way around, the old before the new, the temporary before the permanent, the obsolete before the new, so that the glory that is to shine out as permanent can be seen for what it is precisely because it outshines what was there before. And that answers the question, why God does it that way round? So that it's possible for us to look at the old and the new the right way around. It was always heading for the new. The old was simply the necessary but obsolete way there. But now to finish, let's sneak a peek at what that permanence looks like before we reach uh, the promises that it will occupy us uh, later in chapter 10. After all, if we don't get it in this sense, what the problem was, if we don't get what the new was about, then the old will still have a hold upon us that's inappropriate. And that's why I reckon that that blank page is the most important. I want to be sure that we are living in the New Testament and not in the old one. If the final promise of this uh, element from Jeremiah here in this text is in verse uh, 12, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more, then isn't the New Testament, New Covenant, just going to involve my, all of us, uh, lying back in our summer hammocks, saying, "Hey, relax. God forgives us." Well, no, it doesn 't seem to be that way. Not if the laws, the ways, the character, the holiness, the goodness of God are actually written on our hearts and minds. it 's funny, but those most convinced of god 's forgiveness are those who most throw themselves at the business of pleasing God by echoing His character might be different if it was the other way around. If instead of having the, the promise of laws in their minds and hearts in verse 10, followed by forgiveness in 12, if it was swapped around. But it isn't swapped around. It's deliberately the way it is. The law will be inside you. And you will be in relationship with me knowing my forgiveness. Every religion in the world, all that there have been, and all that could be thought up even, It's worth thinking about recognising that just because we're still in the month of Ramadan in the Islamic world. Every religion in the world ends up telling us that there's a law we must keep to keep God happy. And the Old Testament has made them all obsolete. They're all wooden mouldings. They've come crashing down. Even the ones you could think up are obsolete. All of them are behind us and those yet to come. The Old Testament has made that set of Jewish laws obsolete precisely to show that no external religion can ever be anything other than obsolete. It is uh, the prime case of very many cases. It might not even be a religion. It might be some philosophical code that your mates want to keep. They are obsolete because they are external. It doesn't mean that the law was wrong. They were the best laws possible and the most complete revelation possible. That's why in the second reading we had in Matthew 5, Jesus honors the law. But those laws can never be enough. All of that, all that comes before that blank page, the whole of it is so that we learn that we need something internal. It doesn't mean it's private because it's internal because we're speaking of the public law of God, but it's internalized, written in heart and mind by spirit. And if we don't get this by the time we've left tonight, then we will end up still driven by issues of the law, by trying to keep some imagined God happy. The heart of the New Testament is not that the sacrifice of Jesus is a better way of dealing with your sins against the law, though it is that, the heart of it is that God has always planned that you should know him, and he will know you, that he will be your God and you will be his people, that, he will, that you will know his character as intimately as he knows yours. And what will become perfect one day, when we all enter that heavenly sanctuary where our brother has gone before us now as high priest, he will start right now. Why would you give up a summer Sunday evening in your hammock when there's rubbish weather coming, apparently, next week and you'll be missing some of the closing ceremony? Why would you do that? Unless it was for something really important. And I want to suggest to you as we close that that blank page is, at least amongst, the most important pages. Because unless you understand where that, what that gap is doing between the old and the new, You cannot enter fully into the extraordinary wonder of what it is that God has always planned for you and for me and for his people as a church, that there should be a people who know their God in heart and mind, and when they fail him, know that they can be forgiven. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't suppose that any of us here this evening uh, can hear that without uh, thinking to ourselves of those times and perhaps we're living through one when we might uh, recognise that we can be forgiven but we're feeling as though uh, the relationship between us and you is clouded, burdened uh, that the law is still uh, weighty, as indeed it is, because it is still the law, it's still your character, your holiness, but laid within us and not upon us. And we ask, Lord, Father, that we would leave here tonight not as those who've forgotten what your character is like, not as those blind to your holiness, not as those uh, indulging our way as though there were no God, but as those who, knowing the law and knowing that we are sinners and that we break it, can nonetheless say with joy and delight that we are forgiven and that we know our God as he knows us. Bring light and health to souls that are weighed down, we pray. And give us a confidence that the world into which we move in the days ahead, while it may have no answer to the challenges of external commands put in new ways, can nonetheless rejoice to imagine that there might be a God whom it is possible to know. We ask it in Jesus' name and that he may be glorified by the words that we speak and the rejoicing of our hearts. Amen.